Hello and welcome to Miss D's Lunacy. Today my guest is a femme fatale of sports. She grew up watching football, thoroughbred racing, and boxing. Later she wrote about it as the very first female sports writer. She accomplished what no other woman ever did before. Let's hear her amazing story and her incredible journey. Please welcome Kay Gilman. Hello, Kay. Hello, Dion. Thank you for joining me. And it's very exciting because I've never met somebody as strong and empowered as you, especially since you've been doing this for a long, long time. So let's go back because I know that you have, I mean, I'm just, there's so much for me to talk about. Uh, the most important thing I would like to talk about is the New York Jets. And so tell me about that and how you ended up doing that book by hand, by the way. It's, I think it's fascinating. Well, I grew up around sports in New Jersey. Um, my father was president of a racetrack called Monmouth Park. My brother, for a short time, um, managed a boxer, heavyweight boxer named Buster Mathis, who fought Joe Fraser in the first fight at the new Madison Square Garden. And uh, then in 1963, my father was one of a small group who bought what was then called the New York Titans out of bankruptcy court, and they became the New York Jets. So I really grew up surrounded by sports and the people in them, and uh, I was always fascinated by it. And it's amazing because you spent so much time with them at family gatherings, with their wives, with their friends, and so you really got to know them quite intimately. Well, when I... Um, did write Inside the Pressure Cooker, which is called A Season in the Life of the New York Jets. Yeah. I I did know uh, the players, the coaches, and others um, before that. But uh, the exciting thing was when I decided to do the book and I got a contract from G.P. Putnam, I literally spent the entire season with the Jets. It was the last season of Weeb Eubank, who was their famous coach, who took them to the Super Bowl, which they won. And I went with them from training camp right to the end. It wasn't a very successful season, but I tried to do what sports writers hadn't done and really examine the players, their families, even the groupies, the coaches, their lives, and give a full picture of really what it was like to, uh, to be on or involved with a professional football team. It's extraordinary. And you wrote this book by hand, which I adore. Absolutely fabulous. So you can find the book. It's called... What? Inside the Pressure Cooker. Inside the Pressure Cooker. A Season Cooker. in the Life of the New York Jets. Amazing. Amazing. And then you did something remarkable because you decided to go to Asbury Park Press. Yes. Well, that was the very, very first part of my career. I had studied writing in college, but I hadn't done much about it. I was a young mother, and I decided, well, if you're going to get started, you better do it now before you're too old. So I did know uh, the publisher of the Asbury Park Press in a social um, setting, and uh, I asked him if he would give me a chance to write some stories, and uh, he said, absolutely write a few articles I told him kind of features I was thinking of and if we like them we'll buy them and they did that is amazing and also you were able to work from home which was marvelous because you could still be with your children but you really took a, a step in a deep pool and all of a sudden it turned into amazing ocean of information and meeting people 
and finding your way to the first sports writer at the Daily News and at Vogue. So let's talk about that a little bit. So your articles were seen. I think you said something about a Thorbred uh, fellow who'd read your stories. He thought they were fascinating, and he's the one who brought it to the, the, your, the publisher of the Daily News, yes? Yes, it was a man named Erwin Rosie who uh, had a sports-oriented PR firm. We, he was a good friend of my family, and he had seen what I did and was somewhat impressed. And he had heard that the New York Daily News was looking for a woman writer, and he showed them my work. And sometimes in your life, you get very fortunate, and something just happens to you, falls in your lap, and this was the case. They saw what I had done, they offered me the job, and that was it. That's was unusual that they lucky. were looking for a woman writer. They just wanted a different angle, you think? I think it was time. I think women's sports was starting to emerge, uh, particularly in golf and tennis. And I think, you know, most publications like to do something cutting edge and that uh, is timely. And, and I got my chance. That's amazing. And you were also working at the Vogue, you did Vogue articles. Yeah, as well, well, they also saw my work and they offered me a chance to write a small column on sports trends, like who was coming on, who was successful uh, athletes, young athletes. I remember I did John McEnroe and a number of others who just when they were starting out. So they they also saw that this was coming of women's being empowered, women being involved with sports and their bodies and uh, exercise for women was really uh, emphasized. Yeah, Jane Fonda was the one who, yes. who brought that to the surface. And she still looks absolutely fabulous. Yes, she does. We don't like Unbelievable. Like so um, you interviewed, of course, for these articles, many, many people. Muhammad Ali, Chris Everett, Evil Knievel. Now, what did he tell you about his motorcycle? <laughs> Evil was a character, and I actually went up in a helicopter with him over New York City, and it was... A little bit scary because they kept the door of the helicopter open. Oh, he was he was looking for locations. I mean, he actually thought of trying to jump his motorcycle between the two World Trade Center buildings. He was not allowed to do it. Thank God. But uh, that was something he was thinking of. He was great. He was a character. He was fun, very upbeat, and just one of these guys who loved to push the envelope. And hasn't he broken every bone in his I think body. so, yeah. I think. That poor man. And you, of course, interviewed Billie Jean King, who was just absolutely amazing at tennis. And how was she, how was that interview? She was a fascinating woman. I think yeah. one of the most interesting interviews I did. I had to wait a while to get to her. I mean, she was kind of, and still is, a guru of women's sports. She made a big, yeah. big difference in getting uh, more, much more equal pay for women, uh, prize money. And yeah. she was a very charismatic and dynamic woman and just fascinating to hear Again, what she had to say. a leader in her field very much like Total Chris leader, Everett. yes. And she was, you know, Chris is a lovely person, but Billie Jean was a firebrand. I mean, yeah. she just, you know, wasn't going to let up until women got what she felt were their due. And so you interviewed Joe Namath as well. Well, I knew Joe, obviously. I actually from, from knew him from when he was first came to the Jets. And at that time, it was amazing. It was headlines in all the papers that he was going to make 400000 a year. That was unheard of unheard. Uh, for a quarterback or anyone to make 400000 And he was one of those guys who just changed a room when he walked into it. Everyone was 
excited by seeing him, attracted to him. He had that star quality that an Elvis or a Sinatra actually has or had. It's true. And Joe Namath did advertising, right? For <laughs> he did some funny things. He, he did, did the shaving. He did uh, a woman's a yeah. pantyhose ad. He and he made a few movies, and um, and he still has it. Um, in my second career as an event planner, we had him come to a big football event uh, for United Way in New York. Uh, the last few years and still when he walks into a room people go crazy they mob him they want their pictures taken with him his autograph he's just got that that something yes, special he was very much idolized i have to say and then you did joe frazier which is the box thing yes yes because your brother was um wasn't he my uh, brother was involved with yes. somebody who Fought, fought him and uh, did not do so well. Ended up on the canvas with a very loud thump. But Joe was a very nice guy. He lived in Philadelphia. He had quite a large family. I went there to interview him. And <laughs> most interesting things was that he had a swimming pool shaped like a boxing glove. Yeah. Oh, and so uh, funny. he was a nice guy. He was a character as well. And Martina you did also as well. I did. She was just sort of coming up then and you could see that she had all the qualities she couldn't quite put them together she said i just i want to be number one that's it and people had told me i had told her she needed to refine her strokes and do a little bit more and once she got over that hump and pulled her game together of course she was one of the all-time greats i mean she still set some records and you also uh, uh sports wrote about golf as well and tennis yes I wrote about women's golf and women's tennis, and um, Colgate was a big sponsor, and it was a couple of big companies that did make it possible for women to get into the major leagues and make decent money, and Colgate was one, Philip Morris was the other, and uh, I went to Palm Springs and covered uh, what was called then the Colgate Dinosaur. The tournament still exists today, and some of these women, the older ones, told me that you know, they couldn't make any money. They used to sleep in their car sometimes, <laughs> or they would take a motel room, three or four of them together, because they couldn't afford uh, to do it on their own. And now, years later, they, you know, they can make millions of dollars and uh, be very successful. And and tennis the same. Tennis didn't have quite a hard as hard a time, but today you see that the both the the women in tennis in the major tournaments do make the same prize money as the men. It's amazing because. It went so fast from that, the 70s, and then all of a sudden there was this amazing movement for women. And so what I think is so fascinating is that you had the savvy to write a book about empowering women and making sure that they understood how to get back into the workforce and that they had to be empowered. And the book is called The Savvy Woman's Success Bible, which I think is remarkable. I love the title. I think it's wonderful. And I love how to find the right job, the right man, <laughs> the right life, which, as you know, is you're navigating here. It's not easy. So um, this book is fabulous because you're teaching women how to make meetings work, how to think like a woman, but think no, think like a man and act like a woman. And I mean, these things were 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 crucial for women who had had children. And we're trying to get back in the work field. It's very difficult for them to sort of re-navigate an entire career that they had to put put away. So this book is available. Um, what, what, 
I would say if you go to Amazon, go on Correct. the internet, um, the book is available. The Savvy Woman's Success Bible. And it teaches you all to have some strength, and this is what all the women are trying to be empowering. We might even have a woman president, actually. That could be a little, ooh la 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 la. And um, so I think everybody should get this book, and I'm gonna get it, <laughs> because I think it's really remarkable. So this career lasted for about six years with this writing and all of these fabulous people that you had met and were writing about. And then you made a change. So tell me about the change that you made as a career, as a partner and president of this company called Hemming and Gilman, which is a special events and fundraising firm. From the writing to all of a sudden all of this, and you guys were producing mega, mega events, which were incredible. So tell me about the events. All right. Well, after, as you said, about uh, five years of sports writing, I loved it, but I thought I wanted to expand a bit into other areas with a little more breadth. And I had met Suzanne Hemming through my sports career. She did do quite a few sports-related events and golf and tennis, and we did expand into others. So I started working with her, and we did develop this company. Um, you know, people, when we first began and uh, proposed, to do big projects, some men would say to us, oh, you two little girls think you can do these big, big jobs? And we both were little in stature, but yes, we could do them. And uh, we did some major events in New York, um, the rededication of the Statue of Liberty and opening of Ellis Island, um, reopening of Radio City Music Hall, the Brooklyn Bridge Centennial, which was fabulous, but our, I think our most challenging event um, was called Three Extraordinary Days in the Nile, starring Frank Sinatra, and that was in Cairo, Egypt. Um, the Sadats were in power then. Uh, Sinatra admired Anwar Sadat. He wanted to do this, and that was very, very difficult because Egypt was basically a third world country. They didn't have, uh, you know, Hertz Rental to rent things. We had to have tents built, chairs, tables, um, we had to bring all the uh, musical instruments in, a 50-piece orchestra from London. Um, right. We had to repaint and redo the uh, restrooms at the pyramids. We had to divert the camel path, which had been uh, for 3,000 years. The camel drivers were very unhappy, so we gave them jobs that night to form an honor guard with torches when the guests came in. Um, we had 500 guests from the United States and Europe, corporate people who supported Madame Sadat's charity, which was called Faith and Hope Rehabilitation Center. And it was an incredible event, and I was very honored. It almost killed us, but um, when Sinatra passed away, um, this event was shown on his obituary tape of him singing at the pyramids. And his attorney, who was a tough guy who really managed everything and was very, very rough, said to us afterwards it was one of the best events that Frank ever did. Amazing. So he sang for three nights. One night. One. First, we had the first night was actually we bought the French designer Pierre Balmain, came in from Paris. He designed, we had a fashion show at a hotel right by the pyramids, and he did beautiful designs, brought in models made out of Egyptian cotton, beautiful off-white uh, dresses, and he introduced a perfume called Ivoire. So that was the first night. The second night was the, um, the pyramids performance. And the third night, there was kind of a, 
let down your hair night at a place called the Video Club. So it was three days. We had special tours of the Egyptian Museum, tours any, of the rehab center. It was uh, amazing. Did anybody get lost out of the 500 people? <laughs> well, they all came out of it uh, alive, though some with a little uh, tummy trouble. Oh, but uh, it was a spectacular event. And um, Well, bravo, because the organization was... Well, spectacular and complex because you had to do all of these things from the outside. Were you arri- Did you arrive in Egypt earlier to make sure that everything was I, done? I was there about a month total. I did a, wow. a trip, um, you know, an advanced trip. Of and course. then about three weeks when it was going on, my partner was there for about five months. And the, the Egyptians were not used to being told what to do by women. That's correct. That was an issue. Um, we did have people who worked with us and translated, but gradually I think they got to respect us and uh, vice versa. But it was just something was hard to imagine. We didn't get a lot of sleep, but we made it work somehow. Amazing, because the Egyptian, my sister lived in Egypt for about 20 years, still does. And she had such a hard time training these people because she was asking them not to throw the garbage out the window. And they would say, yes, yes, yes. And, of course, she had to learn Egyptian at this point, Arabic, I should say, because, you know, she was living there and her children were, she had two daughters, beautiful daughters, and she kept going to the kitchen. And sure enough, the minute she'd walk out, they'd start throwing the garbage out the window. They're, they're very hard to, uh, very difficult. Plus, plus, when you're driving, I hope you realize this, there are cars and camels on the road. And there's no such thing as a red light and a green light. They just honk. I was petrified. I kept saying, what's all this honking? It sounded like being in India where they do nothing but in the tuk-tuks they honk. And they don't, they don't follow any road signs whatsoever. Did you notice that? Oh, yes. Well, we learned pretty quickly in Egypt that you asked them something and they would say yes to everything. See? See? But you learn, I did learn, you learn when... They said yes, whether they really meant yes. You learned whether they meant maybe, and you learned whether when they meant no. <laughs> and once we learned that, we found out how to maneuver because sometimes we would have to get pretty tough or go to a higher level to make happen what needed to happen. That's amazing. And in the opening of the Ellis Island Museum, you said that Lee Iacocca was helping and fundraised for you? He was really the voice and the face of um, the Statue of Liberty rehabilitation and Ellis Island. Um, Lee was from an immigrant um, Italian family, and he really believed in this. President Reagan asked him if he would do this and raise the money because they didn't want to give it from government funds. They wanted to raise millions of dollars. So Iacocca agreed to do the Statue of Liberty only if we could also rejuvenate Ellis Island, which was a total deserted wreck. And he said, I just told you this earlier, that um, he felt that the Statue of Liberty was the dream, but Ellis Island was the reality. That was the reality of hundreds of thousands of immigrants, our first view of New York, um, trying to get through immigration to start a new life. So well, the statue is beautiful today as it ever was. Ellis Island has risen from the ashes. It has a wonderful immigration museum. And you walk in there, you can really feel the vibrations of these people who came through with their suitcases, who in many cases had nothing and started their lives in the United States. It's incredible. Now, my son made me climb the Statue of Liberty all the way to the top. I almost had a heart attack. I said, I can't, because, you know, you start looking down and you start having a complete heart failure. So he made me go up there 
all the way up to into the head and everything, which I thought was amazing. The, I'm so I mean I think it was shaking coming on the way down. It's very far to go. Don't you think? Have you ever been out oh, there? Yes, yes. It's a tough it, trip. <laughs> it's quite it's quite a, a, a to do. I have to tell you. So I adore Rita Hayworth, and so as you know, she was married to the Aga Khan, and so his, her daughter has uh, been doing the Alzheimer Association for many, many years and has continued to do so. So you did events also for that organization, the Alzheimer's Foundation, correct? Yes, the Rita Hayworth Gala. Yasmin's really an extraordinary person. Amazing. Um, her mother started having symptoms of Alzheimer's when she was only 53 years old, and people accused her of being drunk because um, she didn't make a lot of sense and she didn't walk so well. And of course they found out after she died for sure, well they knew what as time went on that she did have a form of Alzheimer's and uh, um, Yasmin took her in, Rita lived with her until she died and then it was her major mission in life and still is to find a cure uh, for Alzheimer's or some way of staving off this disease. So. She has literally raised millions and millions of dollars for research into uh, Alzheimer's disease. Amazing, amazing. She's really remarkable. I've been to some of the the parties that they had in New York. I think they're doing, I, they move venues all the time, don't they? Well, they've done it the last um, 12 years, I would say, at the Waldorf. Waldorf, uh, that's Before that, they did it at um, the Tavern on the Green for a while, but I think the Waldorf's been the best home for them and they every year they raise uh, at this gala um, and how around two million dollars amazing and how does the money get dispersed well it goes primarily to research to try to as I say there's any way to prevent the disease and of course research to assuage the symptoms and the onset and the progression of the disease it's true I mean it's a really hard thing but is they sometimes they say it's genetic do you agree with that I'm not an Alzheimer's ex uh, expert, but there is evidence that um, yeah. in some families uh, it's more predominant. And there are, um, there's a proof certain gene that's recently came out that almost positively, um, you know, opens it up for people to get uh, Alzheimer's. And, you know, that's a very small portion of the population, but that's the case. It's true, and that's what was wrong with a lot of the uh, uh, the players, uh, football players, because they were getting Alzheimer's as well, early on set because of the fact that they were getting hit in the head all the time, right? I mean, they were punching each other. And well, there has been, of course, a lot that's come out in the last few true. years about brain trauma you know, being caused by um, the tremendous, even though they have helmets and pads and all of that, there's a lot of head contact and now that there's much more sophisticated testing, it has been shown that many of the players have developed early onset um, Alzheimer's and dementia, and you know they're being compensated by the NFL, and uh, of course they're trying desperately to see anything they can do to alleviate that. Well, I think you told me that the players way back in the day were played for quite some time. They played for years and years and years. And uh, now I think that you said to me that they, I mean, they should only be playing for about four and a half or five years. Well, that is the average, actually, Dion. That's been really? pretty much the average over over many years, that the average player plays about four and a half years, and they usually do stop because of injury, not 
always head trauma, but many other injuries, a lot of them can't play. Knee injuries are very, hip injuries, ligament, um, Achilles tendons. There are many things that force them to stop their career, and they can't be as fast or as strong as they were. I understand. And so what do these people do after four and a half years? Well, some of them think about it, and some of them don't. Some of them cultivate corporate contacts. Some of them want to become coaches themselves. And sadly, some of them don't really plan for it at all, and they didn't get good financial advice. And you do see many who, after having a a good career and the ability to make quite a bit of money, that they go through it, and they're really, you know, kind of lost. It's such a shame because, the you know, football is America's favorite sport, I believe, right? I mean, is Well, it- there's a, <laughs> baseball fans might dispute that, but uh, it's certainly about, I would say, the two national sports are football and, and, baseball. and baseball. I couldn't agree with you more. So now you have the New York Giants. What did you do? The New York Yankees. I love them. You did a homecoming dinner for them. Yes, we did. We've done that for many years. It started as a luncheon, and then it became a homecoming dinner that happens right at the beginning of the season, and the entire team comes. They have to come by contract, but they come. And the fans, same thing. We raise a lot of money for the Yankee Foundation, and um, you know, it's a very, very successful event. Actually, our first one was a luncheon, and uh, Mickey Mantle was there, and so was Cardinal Cook, the Cardinal Archbishop of New York, and when Mickey Mantle was handed the award, he said, I feel like Sophia Loren's baby, all this for me. (laughs) So everybody laughed, except the Cardinal didn't think it was very funny, and he did uh, soon after depart the room. Amazing. So this is almost every year. This is every Every year. year. Every year it happens. And where do you do this gala? Usually at the New York Hilton. It's a very big event. It's almost... 2,000 people attend, and uh, for Yankee fans, it's a very exciting very. time because they can actually get to meet the players, see the players, and uh, it really starts the season with a bang. Amazing. And then you did the United Way Gridiron Gala featuring the New York Giants and the Jets, yes? Yes, we do that, and uh, Joe Namath does come to that every year, and the two teams come. Um, we honor different players from the teams, and uh, we get a great turnout from them. And it's the same thing. People love to come to it because they get to rub shoulders with the players to meet them. People who buy the higher-end tables get a player and a guest to sit at their table. So it's a great way of them being able to communicate, to mix, and uh, the fans just really love it. And it's all in New York. And it's all in New York, and it raises funds for United Way of New York City. And that's that raised wonderful. a lot of money over the years. Amazing. And you've done the American Hospital in Paris as well. Yes, you're from Paris originally. <laughs> so um, that's a wonderful hospital that's located in Paris. It's yeah. been there for many years, and it's um, started by Americans who live there, and it's one of the finest hospitals in Paris. And uh, there are quite a few people in New York who are very supportive of it, who are French or French, um, you know, by uh, Well, what's amazing family. is that sports is so usually male-dominant, yes? And then you were able to break through that and write for them and meet them and get to know them. And so that was a huge accomplishment because I don't think any other woman had been able to do that before. Well, no other woman. I was given the opportunity many Women weren't, of course, today. There are many female sports writers 
broadcasters, et cetera, at the time. It was unusual. I liked being a pioneer. I thought it was fun. I felt comfortable with these people because I had been around sports for so long. And I actually thought that being a woman was an advantage because I, I didn't look like the regular guys that were sports writers, and I wasn't interested in their statistics. I was interested in who they were as people. I think that's wonderful. Did you find it an advantage or a disadvantage being a woman in sports career? I thought it was an advantage because cause I looked different and I was looking at different things. Some of these guys were tired of talking about what happened in this game or that game or how many yards they gained or their home runs. They liked talking about themselves. They were kind of disarmed by it and the fact I happened to be small, I'm short, <laughs> had blonde hair, I was a little, you know, I just, they always would say to me, but you don't look like a sports writer. And uh, I would say, well, I am, but they, you know, I found that many of them were very open and they kind of like talking about things other than their accomplishments on the field or in the arena. And you put your little cachet right out there, so you had quite, quite a, a, a feat to win. Now, lately, there's been a lot of sexual harassment in the f in female sports columnists, as well as sports writers and broadcasters being harassed through social media. And it's become a bit of a scandal, don't you think? Well, it, it has been a scandal. It was an article very recently, it was in the New York Times and on the internet about some of these uh, female broadcasters who were getting attacked on social media or just getting very, um, obnoxious sexual innuendo uh, directed at them and uh, you know they just had to deal with it but it's, it's certainly an unpleasant part of the job um, when I was there they didn't have social media um, I did get some uh, kind of weird letters at the Daily News but I would just discard them and I think these women need to just move ahead and not uh, pay too much attention to this. I agree because it could just get itself completely out of out of whack so um Good for you. Now, uh, you think this will ever end, that these people are harassing people? I mean, especially women, I think that's so unfair. No, I don't think it's going to end in any way. I mean, every day you read news stories about, uh, about women being sexually exploited uh, on the media and being blackmailed with, if they, you know, send pictures of themselves kind of uh, suggestive pictures that they're blackmailed into trying to even get more suggestive pictures. I mean, it's it's really pretty scary, and I, I'm just not sure where it's going to Too many end. people involved in one's life through social media. I believe it. I think some of it is very bad and very hurtful, and I think that's why you were so empowered to write the book, The Savvy Woman's Success Bible, which was actually nominated for a National Book Award by Books for a Better Life in the motivational category. And I think you probably helped so many women realize their inner strength and to continue to work and do the right things for themselves and to give them confidence. Don't you think that was very helpful, that book? I mean, you said to me it became very, very popular. Well, I got a lot of positive feedback with that uh, from that book. Um, I wrote that quite a bit after I had gone into the special events business. As I said, I had a partner. We had about five or six people who worked for us. It was a small entrepreneurial business. I wrote the book with a woman named Tina Santi Flaherty, who had been the first woman vice president at Colgate Palmolive. So she had come up through the ranks, the ranks and, you know, getting first uh, 
vice presidential position at Colgate, which was a huge company, and I came up through a little company that was created with another woman. So we put our heads together. We decided there were a lot of things we wished we had known when we started out, and we wanted to write something that was kind of a blueprint for women who were starting out. We first thought it would be appealing to girls coming out of college and who wanted to start their careers, which it somewhat was, but actually our biggest audiences when we did a national book tour were women who often had been married and their children had grown or they had gotten divorced and had to fend for themselves and get back into the job market or get started in the job market and they really needed it and they reacted very well to this book because... Well, I could imagine it helped a lot of people. I think it's wonderful and that's why your, that book was really very, very popular for you. And then, of course, you wrote the New York Jets um, book, which I think was fascinating because it was an intimate story about their lives, correct? Yes, and that was when I was still at the Daily News and Vogue, and um, I took a certain amount of time off to really, as I said, to be with them from the beginning of the season, training camp, to the bitter end, and uh, and look at all the facets of a team, even the traveling secretary who was a fascinating guy who got them from place to place. Of course, the players, the players' wives, groupies, of which they had uh, quite a few, um, their families. It was just, uh, I tried to do a multifaceted look at uh, what a year with a team uh, really was like. Amazing, amazing. And uh, y the team was, was sold, yes? The team was sold after um, my father passed away in the late 70s, and then um, Leon Hess ended up, of um, Hess Oil ended up owning uh, the team, and when he passed away, um, it was sold to uh, Woody Johnson, who is now the owner and president. Amazing, amazing. And I, uh, you t said to me a lot about boxing because your brother was doing this, was the manager for this uh, player, and you said it was probably boxing and it's called heavyweight, correct? Well, the heavyweight division. Boxing has all different level, divisions, le le a level yeah. starting from a lightweight to a welterweight to a middleweight. And then the heavyweight is kind of the ultimate level. And uh, I actually met Joe Lewis um, at the end of his career, who was a legendary boxer. Jimmy, my brother, was friendly with him. And actually, that was sad because you could see at that time that he had lost uh, much of his brain power. And uh, well, that. And then, of course, the same thing happened to Muhammad Ali. And I interviewed him and one of his wives uh, years ago when he was still totally with it and exciting to be around. And then he got Parkinson's syndrome, which is something a little unusual, but uh, he also um, lost some of his speech and his uh, quickness uh, of mind. It's so sad. It's so sad. Well, I mean, when you get punched around like that, but it didn't scare you? No, it was really a heavyweight boxing fight back in the day. It's not so much anymore. That was the ultimate sports event. I don't know, from man to man in a ring. It was the excitement, the publicity around it. It was just tremendous. Uh, it was the, almost one of the ultimate events in sports, I would say. That's changed. Boxers are now not as popular, and there's nobody dominant like, um, like Muhammad Ali was, George Foreman, yeah. and Joe Fraser, and then Mike Tyson for many years. And now it's kind of... Um, 
sunk away. And maybe perhaps that's that's right because it, it is a very dangerous uh, sport. But, that is for but, sure. But it was exciting. To it be. must have been. So people are all screaming and running. I mean, is, was there betting going on? They the don't parties? really – I mean, the, the, you can't bet at a – Fight, but I mean, of course, like in Las Vegas and then bookies and betting outlets, of course, people bet on it like they bet on other sports. It's just fascinating that with your little tiny person with all these sports under your belt, I think you're fascinating. And you must get the Savvy Woman's Success Bible because I think it'll help a lot of people who are trying to get back in the field. Well, I'm just fascinated by you. I cannot believe all the things that you've done. So, Congratulations, and here's to empowering women and hoping that women will understand and continue with their quest for jobs and for equality in the market, which is what I think you help so much with the tennis and then the golf and all of these things where women were not being treated properly. So we've done a great job here, and if it hadn't been for you, we wouldn't have been able to do all of that because everybody has to be a leader in some capacity or another. So please get the book, and um, thank you so much for telling us all this wonderful news. And um, you have a wonderful summer, by the way, because I know everybody leaves. And, um, and all I have to say is, lead us not into temptation. We can find it ourselves. God bless, and thank you for listening. <laughs>